The things of this world will never really satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. You will always go to their water holes. You will always look for just a little bit more. And you will always come back dry and thirsty. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Woman at the Well. In our study of the Gospel of John, we move to chapter 4 today and find the woman at the well. Her encounter with Jesus radically changes her life. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he examines this encounter. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 4. If you're with us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this fourth gospel. In our passage this morning, the Lord Jesus meets a woman at the well, and her life is radically changed. It's well been said that God forms us, sin deforms us, education informs us, culture conforms us, but Jesus transforms us. Because the Bible says if any man is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. You say, well, Pastor, I'm a Christian, and God never really changed me. My dear friend, you've never really met him. You've only heard about him. And all I would say to you, if your religion has never changed you, you'd better change your religion. You say, but I was already a good man. No, the Bible says there is none good but God alone. And this gospel that I preach will make a bad man good, and it will make a good man much better. And the contrast here between this good man, Nicodemus, in chapter 3 and this immoral woman in chapter 4 is not accidental. God put them in this book next to each other for a reason. One was a man, the other was a woman. One was a Jew, the other was a Samaritan. One was a respected ruler, the other was a social outcast. One was an upright Pharisee, the other was a notorious sinner. One came by night, the other came by day. Nicodemus, he had no arguments with the Lord Jesus. He just wanted to know how. How can one be born from above? Where this woman, oh, she's full of debate and questions. Nicodemus doesn't immediately respond, but this woman responds immediately. In fact, she brings a whole town to hear the Savior. What a contrast between this Jew, this leader, a man who has learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained, This woman who is unschooled, without any influence, despised, capable really only of folk religion, a moral outcast. It's not by accident that God put these chapters next to each other here in Holy Scripture because God wants to show that both kinds of people need to be saved. God wants us to understand that there are none who are too good to be saved. And there are none who are so bad that they cannot be saved. Everyone needs salvation. Now, there in your note-taking outline this morning, I want you to notice that we've divided this according to the three scenes that we find here. In verses 1 through 8, we find a detour. In verses 9 to 30, a discussion. And then finally, in verses 31 to 42, we find the disciples. So let's jump right into the text as we begin this morning with the detour that Christ must take. Notice the first three verses. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then this meticulous parenthetical note, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, that is, Jesus used his disciples as the instruments to perform the baptism, 
And so we're told in verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now, notice the very first verse. Jacob, make another verse 1 for me at this point for the next service. I, I left it out when I made these. I apologize. But notice the very first verse. It begins with the word, therefore. That's an important word because the apostles connecting this passage with what has previously taken place. Now, if you have the NIV, it omits the word therefore because it's a more fluid translation. There are different kinds of translations and the uh, translators of the NIV had two goals, readability and literalness. And so they put readability first and sometimes they leave out the literalness and leave out words that are there in the original text. Whereas the NAS that most of us are reading this morning, or the King James, it's what we call a dynamic equivalent, a word-for-word translation. And they put literalness first and readability second. And so because I teach the Bible, you need a literal translation. You need to see how every single word hooks together, how one paragraph is connected to the next. Now, if you remember last week, we learned that at this time, Jesus' influence was increasing and John the Baptist's influence was diminishing. He said, that's the way it should be. He must increase that I might decrease. And no doubt the Pharisees here want to pit the disciples of John against the disciples of Christ. And so the connection here, therefore, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples, he left. He departed, the text says, again into Galilee. Again, that tells you he's going there a second time. We saw him the first time in chapter two when he went to Galilee to a place called Cana, where he turned the water into wine. But of course, neither John the Baptist nor the Lord Jesus would have any part in this division. And so we saw in chapter 2 last time, John the Baptist rebukes his disciples, and Jesus goes on into Galilee. And of course, a major truth that we've seen all the way through this gospel, and we will see to the very end, is that Jesus Christ is on a divine schedule. No one, he said in chapter 10, will take his life from him. He will give it. And he's not going to allow any Pharisee to mess up this supernatural timetable. And so he leaves. He's going to depart into Galilee. Now, verse 4, very interesting. The text says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Would you circle those words, had to? You cannot read that verse without being drawn to those words, had to. Now, if you looked on a map in the back of your Bible, you would see that there are about five major provinces that what we call Palestine was divided into in the first century. Down in the lower quarter, you have Judea. Just north of that, you have Samaria. And just north of that, you have Galilee. All right? Now, if you were a Jew, and you're down in the south of Israel in Judea, and you want to go to the northernmost part, way up there at the top, by the Sea of Galilee, there in Galilee, the Jordan River flows all the way south to the Dead Sea. But if you wanted to go north to Galilee, you basically had three choices. You could go on the western edge, of Judea along the coast of Samaria and make your way into Galilee. And you could avoid a lot of Samaritans that way. Or you could go on the right side there of Judea, make your way up along Perea, along the way of the Jordan River that runs all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, and miss all the Samaritans entirely. Or option number three, if you're in Judea and you want to go north, you can go directly through Samaria. Now, it was not the Jewish custom to typically go directly through Samaria, though they did at times. 
Josephus uses the same Greek word had to in describing the pattern that some Jews would take for rapid travel that was essential if time was of the essence. But typically, they did not go through Samaria. And Jesus, of course, is in no rush. He's on a divine timetable. And John is going to echo that throughout this whole gospel. He's on a mission. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. And so he has to go through Samaria because he wants to meet a woman of Samaria and all those village people who are there. Now, I think it's important for us to understand something about the prejudice that Jews had towards Samaritans to really appreciate all that is unfolding. If you remember, there was a time when the nation was totally united under one kingdom. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And they were all called Israel for a period of time, all united. And eventually they were united under Israel's most famous kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Because of moral uh, compromise on Solomon's part, God said he was going to divide the kingdom. But he'd wait for Solomon's day to end and for his son to come for the sake of his father, David. So Rehoboam comes on the throne, acts very stupidly, listens to the younger elders in the nation, and the place divides. Ten northern kingdoms known as Israel, two southern kingdoms known as Judea, or two southern tribes known as Judea. Ten northern tribes, Israel, two southern tribes, Judea, named after the larger of the two. Judea, of course, being bigger than the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Think your way through this. God sent all these prophets in the Old Testament to preach to these people. He said, you're living in idolatry. You're doing wicked things. And so he sent some prophets, some major, some minor prophets, as they're called, to preach to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom. Those who came to the northern kingdom, he said, if you don't repent, God's going to judge you. He's going to use the Assyrians. And so this wicked, vicious, pagan nation becomes an instrument in the hand of Almighty God, and the Assyrians come down and they capture those ten tribes, but they leave behind the weak, the poor, the disabled, what those they considered to be worthless people. And they continue to live in this section. Oh, about 130 or so years later, God, he continues to send prophets now to the southern kingdom. He says, you better repent, or what happened to the northern kingdom will happen to you. Of course, the Assyrians are eventually thrown over by the Babylonians. But God ultimately takes the Babylonians and they come down to the southern kingdom and they carry those folks away into captivity. Folks like Daniel who lived in captivity. We read books uh, like Daniel and Ezekiel that took place during the time of the captivity. Now, the ten northern tribes never really came back. They were dispersed. But those two southern tribes, God promised, would come back. And eventually they all will before the second coming. But those two southern tribes came back. And when they came back into Israel, they discovered that this place called Samaria, and it was named Samaria after the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, made a capital city, and they called that capital city Samaria. So this whole region eventually became known as Samaria. But when they came back from the 70-year captivity, they discovered that those who had left behind and had begun to remarry, and so this mongrel race had developed as they considered it. They were half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews because they had intermarried with the Canaanites who had come and captured their land. And so you had a race of people who were half Jewish and half Gentile. 
And they were living in this area known as Samaria. And so the Jews didn't like them. They saw them as a despised group of people. Remember Jesus in John 8 when the Pharisees encounter him and they absolutely hate Christ. And so when they think of some bad adjectives to describe him, they say he's a Samaritan and he has a demon. That's how they use the word. And they consider these people to be unclean. So you didn't get near these people. In fact, they knew that in the eyes of a Jew, they were despised, and they weren't even allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship. So they started their own temple in a place called Mount Gerizim, a very important place, not just for the Samaritan temple, but also for other events that took place in biblical history. Look at verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Now, Sychar, it's right next to Mount Gerizim, if you had a map. That's the place where the Samaritan temple once stood. It was leveled by a man named John Hyrcanus because he thought it was a heretical temple, but the folks still worshiped there. So there was Mount Gerizim. Also noted in this verse is a well, Jacob's well. Jacob's well um, was where the ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Remember when Jacob died, he brought all the kids in and he blessed them and he did this and he did that. And he said, Joseph, here's the property that you can have. Now, Joseph, if you remember, never made it out of Egypt. God used him to conserve and protect and uh, allow the Jewish people to survive because you really can't kill the Jewish people because God's plan is, was to use them to bring about the first coming. And his plan is to use the nation of Israel to bring about the second coming. So you can't wipe out the Jewish people. Many have tried, but you can't. But Joseph was there. And uh, he said, look, guys, I'm going to die. And when I die, eventually you're going to leave this place and you're going to go back into the promised land. And when you go, you take my bones with you. Well, a Pharaoh comes on the throne who never knew Joseph. The people go into bondage just as God had prophesied to Abraham for 400 years. The end of the 400 years, God brings them out by Moses, a mighty deliverer by a great and powerful hand. And they take that box of bones with them and they bury it. And so if you go to this place today, there's Jacob's well. And just a short distance away is Joseph's tomb. Now, there's a lot of places you go to Israel and say, well, we think maybe this happened here and. Then you go to another spot, they say, oh, this happened here. Well, I just came from a spot, and they said it happened over there. And there's some disputed sites. But there's a few sites that have absolutely no dispute around them. And one of them is Jacob's well. You can still go there today and have a drink out of the well. And if you ever have a chance to go there, you ought to do that. And, of course, just a short distance away is Joseph's tomb. Now, look at verse 6. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, some people understand this to be 6 p.m., a minority of people. I think they're wrong because they're counting according to the Roman schedule from midnight to noon, from noon to midnight. But even the Romans didn't typically count that way unless it was a civil document where they needed a time frame where the lease or whatever it was might expire at the end of the day. However, the more common Roman people and the Jewish people thought of the day, not like we do today from noon to, to, to midnight, midnight to, to noon. That's how we do it. We follow the old Roman schedule. They were following the way it established originally in creation. Remember, God counted a day from sundown 
to sundown. That's why Jesus is buried Friday afternoon before sunset, day one, Friday night to Saturday night, day two, early Sunday morning, day three. He rose again on the third day, not by accident. That's how they counted a day. And so they divided a day, typically, into 12-hour frames and then in the night watches. And the daylight frames went from sunrise to sunset, typically beginning at 6 a.m. and in at 6 p.m. So when it says this 6 hour, he's talking about 12 noon. It's high noon. Now, why is that significant? Because people didn't fetch water in the middle of the day. Typically, they went in the early morning or the late evening because it wasn't so blistering hot. And if you follow the chronology of John's gospel, they are in a hot time in Israel. You don't want to go to Israel much after February. It's just too blazing hot. Verse 6. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Here he is, sitting at the well, tired and thirsty. And just as John presents him in the opening prologue of this gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Christ's humanity was real. And so in the heat of the day, he's wearied from the journey. He's thirsty. He's hungry. So he sends the disciples into, food to buy some, into town to buy some food. And yet, this one who is truly human is also truly divine. He will tell a woman everything that she had ever done. Now, John the Apostle very clearly paints a divine human nature throughout this gospel. Here he is tired, hungry, hot, thirsty. He was not immune to the normal frailties of humanity. He was a real human being. He had a real human body, real emotions, real feelings. But he's also divine. He's omniscient. And throughout the history of the church, people have been in error of either denying his humanity or denying his divinity. Sometimes, even today, the cults present him simply as a man, maybe with some divine qualities, but only as a man and not as God, as do a number of liberal Protestants. Or sometimes he is presented as God. It's not an era you see so much today, but they deny his humanity, that he was only pretending to be a man. And both views are inaccurate. The truth is, is he is the God man. He is the word made flesh. He is perfect humanity. He has undiminished deity, inseparably combined into one person, Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the picture found in Holy Scripture. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now that's rather interesting. <laughs> the one who made the Nile, the one who created the great Mississippi, who crafted out Niagara Falls, who filled the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater place, he was thirsty. Now, centuries before, the New Testament reminds me of an Old Testament event that Christ was the one who drew water out of a rock for Moses. And this one sitting by that well certainly could have spoken to the well and the water could have bubbled up over the top right under his feet and he could have quickly been refreshed. But the Lord Jesus never once ever does a miracle for himself because he humbled himself and he wanted to experience and was willing to experience all, of you, all the frailties that you and I know. Now, on the surface, it looks like Christ is the one who's in need, but things are not always the way they appear. The one who has the greatest need is this woman. Now, don't miss the note of explanation, verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 8 suggests that had the disciples been here, they would have been involved in the process of getting water. 
but they were out in the city buying food. Now that's an important note because it tells me that Jesus sent them there into this Samaritan city, which tells me he didn't have a hint of prejudice. Not only did he go through the town, he sent them into the town to buy food. He went through Samaria and then sent them off into the town to buy food. You see, a Jew didn't want to have contacts with Samaritans. They didn't want to speak with Samaritans. They certainly wouldn't eat food that had been held or grown by a Samaritan. To them, it was as contemptible as eating swine. But the Lord's different. And I believe, among other things, the reason he sent them into the town is he's going to prepare them for a very important lesson that we're going to see at the end here of this dialogue. Now, that's the detour that Christ must take. Secondly, that brings us into the discussion that Christ must have. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now the inherited suspicions and animosities between Jews and Gentiles erupted here at this well, not in Christ's heart, but in the heart of this Samaritan woman. Here is a Jew asking a woman, a man asking a woman, which was very unusual, and a Samaritan woman at that for a drink. A woman from a despised race. And so her surprise is rather understandable. She cannot fathom that a Jew would ask her for a drink to touch the very utensil that she held much less drink from it because they would have thought then they were unclean. That's what the Pharisees taught of the day. That's what most people believe. It was absolutely taboo to have this kind of contact. But we find here Christ doing what others did not do. And he uses this everyday event, being the great soul winner that he is, he can take any kind of setting and turn it into a beautiful illustration for salvation. Whether it's a sower sowing or a flower blooming or a well bubbling, it doesn't make any difference to him. And so we read in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this woman obviously did not know who she was talking to, because if she did, Jesus said, she would have asked him for something, for the gift of God, for living water. Now, what is the gift of God? Well, the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. And here the eternal God is offering her the gift of God, eternal life, described here as living water. Now the syntax, the way it's constructed in the original, emphasizes the adjective living. You could paraphrase it. He would have offered you water, I mean the living kind. It's important to understand how God uses living water to really see and appreciate what is happening here. He uses it in the Old Testament. It's not unique here to describe the relationship that God wants to have with man. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet said. For my people, God says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The people in Jeremiah's day had forsaken God for idols, and so the Lord compares them to exchanging a fresh spring of water to that of a a stagnant, leaking cistern. 
They had forsaken God and they had missed the living water that he had wanted to give to them. John will use this or he'll tell us of Jesus' use of living water in this way. Later on in the gospel, we'll read, if any man is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit. Oh, the trades we make. Oh, the cheap substitutes we take. When we forsake the living waters of God for what the world has to offer us. When we take the pleasures of this world in exchange for the pleasure of walking with Almighty God. And this woman is a classic example. A woman who looked for love, meaning, joy, and happiness in all of the wrong places. So Jesus is trying to help this lady to see that he wants her spirit to be to him what this water is to her body. Now, of course, there's a double meaning here for living water, and she doesn't really pick up on it. She thinks he's just speaking about fresh running water. Look at verse 11. She said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Not a claim to be able to provide living water on the spot without having the means to draw would mean he was either a charlatan, a ripoff artist, a con man, or he was someone greater than Jacob. Now, of course, the way the question's framed in the original, she doesn't believe he's greater than Jacob. The implied answer is, no, you're not greater than our father Jacob. And of course, she's doubly wrong. Because Jesus is greater than Jacob. He is the one who made Jacob. And he is the one who made the water that was in this well. So to set her straight, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. To paraphrase, whoever continues to drink of this material water, or for that matter, anything else the world might offer, will thirst again. But whoever takes one drink of the water that I give him shall never thirst again. My friend, once you've experienced the living waters of Jesus Christ, having been born again, you will see how quickly the offerings of this world pale comparative to Christ. The things of this world will never really satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. You will always go to their water holes. You will always look for just a little bit more. And you will always come back dry and thirsty. But I want to tell you by experience, by personal testimony, I have had the depths of my being satisfied. Doesn't mean that I want more, don't want more of Christ. I want more of Him. But all that I have had of Him have satisfied the very depths of my soul. You're speaking to a satisfied customer. Someone who's had this living water that Christ speaks of, speaks of this water that springs up to eternal life. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 010. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, 
Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.